Welcome to Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast with your host, Steve Shulwolf. Thanks, Phil. I'm Steve Shulwolf, founder of Shulwolf Mediation. I do mediations across the country. My home base is in Austin, Texas, and Chicago, Illinois. And this is episode eight of Opening Doors to Resolution of Mediation podcast. And last episode, in episode seven, I talked with Professor Julia Simon Kerr, who feels that COVID raises an opportunity for our legal system to reassess how we allow jurors and trial courts to assess demeanor testimony. Ms. Simon Kerr believes that witnesses can be believed even if they're testifying with, with masks. And a lot of people out there right now feel that one of the difficulties with trials in the era of COVID is that jurors will not be able to assess the credibility effectively of masked witnesses. Now, Professor Simon Kerr believes that potentially this may lead to a reevaluation of some of the basic tenets of American jurisprudence. Respectfully, I think that she might be a little bit optimistic, but she presents very strong arguments. And if you haven't tuned in to episode seven, I admittedly am biased, but think it's worth a listen. Now, mediators and attorneys need to be able to take a look at a certain problem or situation from multiple angles. And so while Professor Simon Kerr was taking a look at how our legal system is responding to COVID from an academic standpoint, today in episode eight, we've got the opportunity to talk about what's really going on on the ground. And so today's guest is Matt Fisher. Matt Fisher is a partner and national trial attorney at the firm Riley, Safer, Holmes, and Kinsella. And Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Steve. It's good to be with you. Here's what it says about Mr. Fisher in the firm's website. In the courtroom and at the negotiating table, he is known for being courteous and professional and as relentless as waves pounding against the beach. So... I guess I'm glad we're doing this in the era of Zoom, Matt, so that I'm not at the table with you uh, as as waves come pounding on, on the beach. Well, I think we're both lucky for that, Steve. We did have some fun with the website. One of my partners drafted that for me, and there's a, a little tip I could give everybody. It's a lot easier to have somebody else write your bio than to write it yourself. I think a very interesting way to to put some of the attributes that I think all clients are looking for in a trial attorney. But so Matt, I have to admit, I'm doing this from it's a room off of uh, the kitchen in the uh, house we're renting here in in Austin and I've been doing mediations via Zoom. Last night I did a CLE presentation again by Zoom. So it's been a while since I've had any face-to-face meetings professionally with anyone, and frankly, socially as well, as we're just trying to hunker down during the uh, pandemic. So I know your experience has been a little bit different. You're based out of both Chicago and California, and so your work requires you to go back and, and forth. So I haven't even been to, say, an airport in months. How's the pandemic treating you? How has things changed for you in this crazy year? I have been traveling a fair amount through this year. There's an enormous difference between what's happening now in September uh, as opposed to what we were seeing in March and April. Back at the beginning of the year, the airports were empty, the planes were empty. Right now, I would say the airports are pretty crowded. The planes are 50, 60% full. It's still a lot easier to get through security, I'll tell you that much. But you can travel, and at least for me, I think it has been not a great deal of anxiety with regard to traveling. I think the airlines and the airports are doing a pretty good job of trying to make sure that people are as safe as possible. Well, it's good to know that you're feeling safe and doing that. And I think all of us at some point are just hoping that we get to the point where things can be a little bit normal. But 
Right now, while that's aspirational, the show must go on in certain industries. The legal industry is no exception, and the legal industry has had to adapt. So I don't know whether you had the chance, and this is not a problem if you uh, didn't, to listen to Episode 7, my conversation with Professor uh, Simon Kerr. I didn't have a chance to listen to it. I thought it was really very interesting, that notion that traditional measures of credibility don't necessarily match with an accurate evaluation of truth, I think is something that has been important in the legal profession for a long time, but doubly important, as you and Professor Simon Kerr talked about, when you have masked witnesses. I was also very interested in the discussion that jurors have reacted so far negatively to masked lawyers. And it's a good reminder for all of us who have a litigation or trial practice that the lawyer's credibility is always being evaluated by jurors as well. So uh, the notion that that was something that bothered jurors definitely stuck with me. Well, and I think you were referring to, I think I referenced that there's these pilot programs going on throughout the country. And I think judges who are conducting them are trying to put together manuals for other courts and other lawyers to review prior to doing trials again. And that, I think there was one particular study in which the the jurors were asked, and most of the jurors felt comfortable with the proceedings, but as you pointed out, they didn't feel comfortable when anybody, whether it was, uh, well, the witnesses in that trial were not masked, but so when anybody really working with the court or attorneys had masks on. And so obviously, I pointed that out to Professor Kerr, because frankly, even if studies demonstrate that people aren't as effective in assessing demeanor as much as they think, it's ingrained in everybody to think that we're able to identify somebody who's lying based on particular demeanor. Yes, absolutely. And I think that the tip for lawyers to always be aware of that for themselves as well as their witnesses is is really, really important. You know, as a mediator, what I told her was you know, many times you try to point out the strengths and weaknesses of a particular party's case. And one way to do that is to say, look, I've spent a lot of time in the other room. I've seen one of their witnesses, and I'm not a judge. I'm not here to tell you whether that witness is going to be believed or not, or whether that witness, frankly, is telling the truth. But I can tell you, based on my experience, I think that witness will come off as credible, and that creates a litigation risk for you. And I guess in doing that, though, I intuitively, I think, am accepting the idea that people at least believe that they're able to assess demeanor probably to a greater degree than some of the studies Professor Simon Kerr discusses when she says, frankly, she concludes that it would be better off if all witnesses were masked because it would then potentially lead to a situation in which the finder of fact, whether it's a jury or judge, paid more attention to the actual testimony and how it fits in with the case than trying to determine whether a particular person's demeanor means that they're lying. You know, in your practice as a trial attorney, the case starts almost with assessment of people's demeanor. You're trying to assess at the voir dire stage whether some jurors uh, potentially might be biased or not. So why don't you Tell us a little bit about whether in that setting you're relying on nonverbal cues from people. I think you always rely on a combination of verbal and nonverbal cues. I think for me anyway, the nonverbal cues are important only at the margins. You could have someone who is kind of on the extreme end of providing uh, nonverbal cues about their desire not to be there, for example. Or, on the other hand, perhaps equally troubling for a trial lawyer, a juror who seems overly anxious to be chosen to serve. And I, I think at the extreme margins, maybe the nonverbal cues are important, but typically the questionnaires that we'll get or the answers to the questions are what we're going to rely on. I really do view jury selection as a process of deselection as opposed to selection. You're just trying to identify folks who are already exhibiting a predisposition against your case as opposed to trying to select folks that might be helpful to you. And the substantive answers, I think, are 95% of of what we're going to rely on in that area. So I saw an interview with the Florida judge, uh, Judge Butko, and they had a, a trial program 
out there in, in Florida, and they had jury selection by Zoom. So Vordir was by Zoom, but they had an in-person trial. So I think my understanding is, is that you have yet to do a trial under pandemic rules. Is that right? That's right. We got close one time, but the case was postponed for non-COVID-related reasons. So I haven't done one yet. Okay. So you haven't done any jury selection, either in person or through uh, Zoom? That's right. And I guess the reason that this court did it, and it makes sense, is logistically, you always have to invite in more jurors than are obviously going to be impaneled, because the whole process is to whittle down jurors, as you as you pointed out. So I think a lot of courtrooms are struggling with the logistics of Ordeer because they just don't have the room to socially distance jurors. So I know you haven't yet done it, but what's your thoughts about doing Vordir by, by Zoom? In the case where we got close, we knew what the process was going to be. So the first big difference in the process was that all of the hardship evaluations were going to be done before formal jury selection began. And so that was going to narrow the pool substantially so that we really only were interviewing folks who had already been cleared as able to serve, which made a lot of sense because you don't want to have a lot of people together in a single room. The one thing that did concern me, even at that first step there, was that you could tell that the pandemic was going to have an enormous impact on the composition of our jury pool. Folks who were in categories of higher risk, including people who are a little bit older, were being excused for cause or hardship immediately. So we knew we were going to get a much younger jury than we typically might have. We knew that we were going to get a jury that didn't have folks who had suffered with other pre-existing conditions. And that was really important in our case in terms of how we were looking at what our jury pool would look like. Well, I've read that elsewhere. And so I'd like to follow up a little bit on that in terms of, you know, how important is it? for these trials to be conducted with a similar cross-section of the population as if it would have taken place prior to COVID? Yeah, I think that people just have to get used to the idea that the composition of the jury will, in fact, be different. You can't generate the same cross-section because there are going to be a lot of people who, because of their vulnerability to the coronavirus, simply are less able to serve. So I think that that is going to influence how parties evaluate their case. You know, even before the pandemic, you know, you'd always evaluate what kind of jury you might have in a particular venue. And I think that now you have to evaluate both the venue and how it might change in light of the pandemic. So there's no doubt that it will affect uh, people's uh, projections about how a trial might go and what the likelihood of a favorable or unfavorable verdict might be. It's just a change that we have to get used to. Well, and I think the reality is, isn't there different, you know, you referenced what the venue was. Don't, putting aside the pandemic, so pre-pandemic, there are venues across the country that are just known to have slightly different jury pool compositions. Those jury pools don't necessarily represent exactly the cross-section of people who who live there, but just based on the the trials that have taken place in that venue, you're able to determine that you might have a slightly older jury pool, you know, in response to the notices that go out in one particular venue than another. And 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 it sounds like those are things that for your practice you you study very closely. Sure. And I think that all trial lawyers do, in addition to differences in venue. Steve, you're also, you know, if you know who your trial judge is, you may know what she or he does with regard to particular hardship challenges. So you might know whether or not your trial judge, for example, routinely will excuse jurors who own a small business or are the sole breadwinner for their family. And you know what impact that's going to have. So the pandemic is just one more factor, I think, in, in how we evaluate that. Now, when I introduced you, I said that you had a a national uh, trial practice. So let's talk a little bit more about what you do. I know that you have done some extensive national work on asbestos defense, other products, liability. Uh, Why don't you describe for us a little bit about the nature of your practice so that when we're talking about trials, people know a little bit where you're coming from. 
Sure thing. I've tried cases in uh, multiple states to verdict. I've started cases in even more jurisdictions than that. I've been doing this for a little bit more than 25 years and have appeared in cases in more than 30 states. So I have a lot of experience in court, both in terms of the pretrial work, as well as some situations where I would come in after a case had been worked up in order to service the trial work. Right. So you're the guy who comes in with the black trench coat and you're the, the cleaner, so to speak, for some of your clients. That's right. My, my costume is well set in my go bag. All right. Well, no, that's one of the reasons, though, that to have a go bag right there, anybody who actually uses the term go bag, obviously, is somebody who travels pretty often. And that was really one of the reasons why I thought that you would be a great guest here today is because there's a lot of trial attorneys out there, but not everybody has done their trial work in in so many different courtrooms. And I think one of the things that we're seeing here in response to this pandemic is that there's really not one uniform way to deal with it. And so each jurisdiction is looking at it differently, starting from scratch. And so you mentioned you came close to trial. I think that was in Washington. You have a national practice. And so any trends that you've observed that one court is doing something completely different than other courts? And so obviously you need to keep close eye on what's going on locally. Absolutely. Yeah. And we have noticed that there are some jurisdictions that seem much more eager to get back to conducting trials. There are some jurisdictions that seem willing to postpone and take kind of a wait and see approach into at least the beginning of 2021 before really pushing towards trials. And there are other that seem to be more anxious to conduct trials and kind of keep the ball rolling in that regard. One of the factors, of course, is that every trial court knows that one of the tools to drive parties towards serious settlement discussions is having a trial date in place. And I think courts with a a little bit of a bigger backlog are anxious to make sure that they keep that tool in their tool belt and push towards trial. No, it's interesting that that's still happening. I had a mediation on Monday and, you know, one of the parties kept saying, well, you know, we're scheduled for trial and it was in two weeks. And I know that county has not had a trial in months. And so I'm like, well, yeah, I get that. I was like, have you had a pretrial conference? And the judge has said that you're going to go forward. And it's like, no, it's just on the docket sheet. I'm like, okay, not really sure that that's going to go forward. But if you want me to go in the other room and stress the fact that we have a trial deadline, I'll be happy to do that. Well, you know, we, we started to talk about the composition of of jury pools. And, you know, I'm fascinated to hear your take on what the mentality is out there and how a trial lawyer deals with it in the sense of just the whole, the the pandemic itself, wearing masks in particular is so politicized. Is it changing, you know, like you're talking about voir dire as a defense attorney, if somebody looks like they're annoyed with their mask, is that something now that people are going to take into consideration because it just seems like it's such a tell for at least how they look at things, maybe politically, and maybe that doesn't matter in a particular trial, but I'm just curious to see you know, your thoughts on that. Well, I think you do try to take everything into consideration, Steve, but I think that one of the real issues there is that it's hard, especially if, as you point out, the voir dire is being done over a video device to really get a sense of whether or not you're accurately seeing what's happening, right? Is somebody fidgeting with their mask because they are uncomfortable with the mask or is there something else going on off camera that you can't really determine? So for me, at least, I think I'm less confident in my ability to read those kind of cues than I would be otherwise. And I suspect that that's happening with other lawyers as well. The politics of it, I think, are interesting One of the things that I think we're experiencing politically is the significance of people's political affiliation is less important in terms of its predictive value about how they might approach litigation at this point, just because there's so much upheaval on the political side. No, I mean, that's interesting. I imagine that 
The whole legal system has to be nimble right now and flexible because these are such crazy times. And so I imagine that to the extent you have your your playbook or your rule book about how you typically prefer to do something, that has to be revisited in every jurisdiction and almost by the week in terms of the way things have been changing in 2020. Yeah, I agree completely. The playbook is less and less valuable and being nimble is a requirement. Well, so one way the legal system has, I think, become nimble is trials right now. There's pilot programs to reconvene in-person trials. At the same time, other jurisdictions are placing maybe, I shouldn't say more of a premium, but they're at least considering going through Zoom trials. So why don't you tell us, I imagine as a trial attorney, you always should know the answer before you ask the question. I imagine you'd prefer an in-person trial than conducting it by Zoom, but what's your take on those alternatives? Yes, I definitely prefer an in-person experience rather than a Zoom trial. And I think that part of that is just familiarity. Trial lawyers are always evaluating their case on a daily basis. You know, Many of us are reporting to our clients every night. And all of the cues that we would ordinarily use are, as I said, less reliable. Our ability to really get a good sense based on our past experience about how jurors are going to react to particular things is also, I think, a little bit in question. So I prefer the the live experience, no doubt. It's nice to, even though the jurors can't speak to us most of the time, it's nice to have some feedback in terms of their reaction to things. And interestingly, for example, in Illinois, the courts have really encouraged jurors to ask questions now after a witness is finished testifying. And I've had a couple of trials where that was done. I found that tremendously helpful. And that's something that really can't be done effectively in a Zoom trial. So definitely the regular experience is better as far as I'm concerned. Well, while trials may have been curtailed over the last months, we still have had hearings go forward. And how have those been conducted? Because I think you've probably, even though you'd prefer in person, I imagine you've represented some of your clients at Zoom hearings. Yes, I have. And it's been very interesting. It's very different. The first thing that was noticeably different to me is I have a newfound appreciation for that time in which you travel to court and go through security. It allows you to clear your head and really be prepared for your hearing. I've noticed uh, on some occasions with a, a Zoom hearing, if you're not careful, you know you can get something else scheduled right in front of it and you don't really have time to prepare in the same way or make sure that you're focused in the same way. I think more substantively, Steve, the, there's a huge difference in terms of how the judges preside over hearings. The judge is no longer physically looming over the lawyers. There's greater kind of equality in terms of the lawyers and the judge. And I have found that there's a lot less formality, generally speaking, in terms of how hearings are conducted. I'm sure you've seen in some of the press reports that some people have taken that to an extreme and have not uh, appeared professionally in front of judges and been reprimanded about that. I, I think that everybody has to be careful about that. But those kind of extreme examples to the side the hearings I've been involved in have been more like give-and-take conversations than the formal argument where the movement would make the initial presentation and a response and then time for a reply. Well, yes, I've heard of some of the anecdotes. I think there was a, I think a judge down in Florida who was pretty upset about how some of the attorneys were appearing. I think some were in bathrobes or in bed. And I forgot which case it was, but wasn't there one of the first Supreme Court cases that was done by Zoom that somebody flushed a toilet? And that made big news because it was a Supreme Court case. But I agree that people are are less formal. I'm obviously looking at it from my practice prior to March I'll admit there's other mediators out there who have been doing online mediation for years. I was not one of them. So I've now, I was looking at it, I've done almost 15, you know, 10 to 15 
online mediations now, and I feel much more comfortable with it. But I think you're right. Settlement and mediations are supposed to be less formal than court, and that's one of the benefits to it. And you want to facilitate an open exchange and dialogue. So I don't need to be in a robe and have the flag or you know the Ten Commandments behind me, right? On the other hand, I've had lawyers appear in t-shirts at the mediation, and so I, I kind of agree with you about formality. You know, one thing that's part of my spiel as uh, an online mediator is you tell people that Zoom has a function where you can record and that I've disabled that and that I verify with everybody that nobody is going to record anything with the phone or any other type of device and everybody says yes. And then the, the other thing that we say is, look, today's proceeding is confidential. So I want everybody to verify for me that the only people with them are either a party to the lawsuit or a member of the legal team representing them. And everybody does. And I've had multiple mediations where I'm talking and it's usually an attorney as opposed to the party. And I'm like, who's that behind you? And then, you know, they're like, oh, and then all of a sudden you see a Zoom background instead of where they are. And you're like, you know, we covered the fact that this needs to be confidential. So I, I think that happens because the whole mindset is I'm at home and it's less formal. And frankly, people have legitimate issues as to how they're balancing their work-life balance because a lot of people are at home right now. Steve, I, I think you're right. You know, the duty of confidentiality is one that lawyers, I think, ordinarily take very seriously. And when we are in our offices, many of our offices have security systems in place that are designed to prevent, you know, kind of random people from walking around. But you can't do that in your home. And as you point out, there's entirely legitimate reasons why people might have children or other people in their home who don't have anywhere else to go. So I think that is an enormous problem. And then you start to talk, talk about uh, the possibility of people being able to hack into the Zoom hearings. There's a very disturbing example recently in a trial in Georgia where the court had provided a public access link and then someone was able to hack in and display images of the 9-11 attacks and pornographic images to the jurors in the middle of a trial. You talk about needing to be nimble as a trial lawyer and being able to deal with something like that, kind of an unexpected disturbance. And it's a real, real problem. In one California case recently, the jury instructions to the jurors told them that for the deliberations, they had to essentially quarantine themselves inside their homes and prevent anyone else from being in the room where they were participating via Zoom. And they were specifically prohibited from caring for their pets during deliberations. You know, that's a jury instruction I never expected to hear, but I'm not sure how much good it does if the dog is scratching at the door where you are and you've got 11 other jurors for whom you're supposed to be deliberating. And the question, I guess, is how do you, as a juror, deal with those distractions that are undoubtedly present in the home that wouldn't be present otherwise? But those kinds of issues, confidentiality, are real questions. Well, and I think it's fascinating. I think one of the reasons that we've seen a decreased amount of formality is because I think judges are empathetic with a lot of the issues that people are dealing with. Early on, it's funny you mentioned dogs scratching at you know at the doors. I, I attended a lot of how to do Zoom you know mediations, Zoom etiquette, and I came to the conclusion pretty quickly that one of my dogs, Ryder, a, a retired greyhound. If I closed the door to the office, he would be anxious and upset that he wasn't in. If I open the door, he lays on a couch behind me and sleeps through the entire proceeding. And what I've noticed is actually dogs, they sense cues of things. He has not disrupted anything. But the second I sign off of a Zoom mediation, he knows it's over. It's just fascinating. He, he jumps up. But you know everybody has to deal with things, and uh, that jury instruction is fascinating. You also mentioned Zoom bombing, so I think as a, as a mediator who's doing confidential mediations online, I, I should note that at least it's the ABA's position that if you require people to register, you have a password for your link, and the mediator or judge and 
you know, a member of the the court staff turns it to you can lock these meetings. So once you have everybody who's supposed to be there, you lock them. And you know, I know there's always hackers out there, and and there's probably ways to get around that. It, but at least right now, the the prevailing thought process is that you know, if you have somebody who's overseeing it, who's aware of those type of things, I guess we can't say it completely eliminates, but it greatly diminishes, uh, you know, the risk. And so, like I said, as part of a mediator who hadn't been doing this before, I, you know, have been trying to educate myself so that I can assure the parties and their attorneys that I'm doing everything I can to make sure that the information that they're sharing will be kept in strict confidence as it would be if I was doing an in-person mediation. But so it's, it's been a learning process. Well, I'll tell you, I really appreciate that. And and I've had some mediations by Zoom where the mediator was highly competent with regard to moving people in and out of a Zoom room and having breakout rooms available. And the mediator would always announce himself before he came back so that he didn't inadvertently overhear something. And I really took a lot of comfort as a a lawyer representing a client that this mediator had uh, worked so hard to make sure that he had mastered the technology. I've had other situations that have been less good in, in that regard, and it does give you some anxiety with regard to who might be listening and how to do that. So I think that it is a signal of competence in terms of uh, your ability to master the technology. It's a real problem, I think, that we're going to have to face. It came up in a case in a trial in California recently where a witness was left alone with the jurors in a Zoom room while the lawyers and the judge went off to have a sidebar and the witness ended up talking with the jurors, just chatting with them in a Zoom room without anybody being present. And it led to a motion for a mistrial. So I understand the ABA's position on the ground. That's going to be hard to execute, I think. Well, yeah. No, I I read about that. I think it was Admiral Wilgenbush and MetaCloud filed uh, the, the motion for mistrial. And, and ultimately, I think the, the court you know, acknowledged it was less than ideal that you had a witness who was commiserating a little bit with the jury, but they found it was limited to how you were able to create a Zoom background, and ultimately the court found that that was not grounds for for a mistrial. And I kind of go there a little bit by saying, Matt, are we in a world right now where we just have to accept the fact that there's probably going to be certain glitches? And, you know, we've never had perfect trials, but that there, there's probably going to be things like that. And unless it's egregious, it's it's not likely to to get you a mistrial. Well, as you point out, we've never had perfect trials. You're not entitled to a perfect trial. And the trial court's decision on those kinds of things is really going to be the last word, right? It, it's very difficult for an appellate court to, on a cold record, later determine whether or not something like this was material enough to declare a mistrial. So you're right. In this instance, the court found that it didn't raise, uh, it didn't rise to the level of warranting a mistrial. But I understood the defendant's position, which was, you know, this was the plaintiff. The plaintiff's credibility was one of the key issues in the case. And the fact that the plaintiff was in a room alone with the jurors, uh, chatting them up and demonstrating how friendly he was and uh, what a, a good guy he was in a, quote, you know, more normal interaction was probably an advantage for the plaintiff in that sense. I also think that the defendants probably didn't anticipate the mistrial would be granted, but they were preserving as much error as they could in order to make a cumulative error argument at the end of the day. But I do have a real concern that the appellate courts, the trial courts will be reluctant to declare mistrials because of the enormous effort and resources being devoted to conducting trials in these specialized ways. And uh, then the appellate courts will be reluctant to replace the judgment of the trial court based on the record. So at some point, we're going to find out which of our procedures are actually the minimum requirements for a fair trial. But I think we're a couple of years away from it. 
And I imagine that's going to be jurisdictionally specific. I'm sure that there will be similar fact patterns that might go a different way depending on the particular jurisdiction. I think you had noted that you had a a case up in Washington that was proceeding towards trial and unrelated to COVID got rescheduled. So You sent me a picture, which I I thought was fascinating. And so why don't you describe a little bit for the listeners what what that picture was? Sure thing. So that was a picture that was taken during a trial up in King County, Washington, which is the county that Seattle is in. And it's a photograph from the back of the conference center where these trials are being conducted. And you can see the sort of card table chairs or convention room chairs that are set up in in the room that are physically distant. And there are no jurors in the room in the photograph. The chairs are all empty. But you can see that it looks like there's, I think it was four chairs wide, and then there's like six rows. So the jurors could all sit in a, a socially distant way. But it looks like, to me anyway, it, it looks like a kind of a horrible PTA meeting where you might go and I have to sit far from your neighbor and strain to hear what's going on up at the front of the room. The very front of the room is where the lawyers are sitting and the judge and the court reporter. And it has a giant screen where exhibits could be displayed for the jurors and also where all the witnesses were scheduled to appear. So in this particular setup, the lawyers and the judge and the court reporter we're all going to be present in this convention center with the jurors, but all the witnesses appeared via Zoom on a screen. And they did all the witnesses that way, which I suppose ensures a little bit more fairness because you don't have some witnesses live and some witnesses on the screen. But it's a very different experience, of course, for anybody trying to cross-examine a witness remotely and kind of have any rhythm to the trial. I was also feeling bad for the lawyers in terms of having to prepare the witnesses over Zoom. You know, that's something that you often do in your workroom the night before, but they're going to have to do that remotely too. So, Well, you described this photo like a PTA meeting, and I think that's a good description. I had memories back to high school as well. And I guess the way I would describe it for the listeners is some of these jurors are where I sat in the cafeteria and where the action was going on were where all the cool kids were because it was so far away, it was almost impossible to you know be able to determine without that screen what was going on. And so clearly, you know, one of the things about a trial, your jurors are all together and I think you'll see glances among them. They want to see how others are reacting. And I think you're going to miss that type of interaction with jurors when they're so spread out like they they were in that photo. I think that's right, Steve. And I think that jurors generally do a really good job of following the court's instruction that they're not supposed to talk with each other about the case during the presentation of the evidence until they've been instructed. But I think that they are still creating community amongst themselves in an ordinary setting so that when they go into deliberations, it's not that you're deliberating with strangers anymore. You're deliberating with people that you've shared this experience with. And I think that that's one of the reasons why jurors do such a good job of reaching unanimity almost all the time. And so I have a real concern in this environment where we're not allowing jurors to create that sense of community before they're required to deliberate. And it'll be interesting to see if that has an impact too. I'm sure that for some jurors who are in the shoal seat in the cafeteria, if they don't feel part of that community, it's going to be harder for them. I think that's a great point. Well, we've jumped back and forth between Zoom and in-person trials, between trials and mediation. I think you pointed out that you really appreciate when you know a mediator at least attempts to master the technology. I think you used the word anxiety because I can confess that the first couple times that I was conducting Zoom mediations, you know, admittedly, I felt just emotionally and intellectually I was more concerned than I should have been or or I otherwise would have wanted to have been with just making sure things went smoothly from a technological standpoint than I was kind of devoting what I think would have been a better use of my time and energy to actually assisting the parties in, in reaching a, a resolution. So I, I, I feel that it's gone, the more that I've done it, the more smoothly it's gone. Where do you think 
even post-pandemic online mediation is going to fit into the system? Is this something that we're just doing because we have to? I think when there's cases with multi-parties where there's parties that are in different jurisdictions, that I think that going forward, there still will be a role for online mediation, even though we're all yearning to be able to sit down at the same table. I think you're right about that, Steve. I, I think that mediation is much more amenable to a remote participation. It allows people, I think, probably to organize their calendars uh, a little bit more and maybe get a mediation on the calendar sooner than they otherwise would. I think it will be interesting to see whether or not mediations by Zoom or, or, or remote mediations are less likely to reach agreement. One of the things I think that drives agreement in some instances is fatigue and the notion that the parties have to spend a day away from their offices. Sometimes that helps get a case settled. So, But I agree with you. I, I think that it'll be increasingly conducted remotely. In one of the prior episodes on this podcast, I revealed that, you know, sometimes mediators, and I'm talking about when I was an attorney, other mediators, of course, I thought strategically withheld the snacks, you know, the opportunity to eat. And and so I'm curious as to whether if everybody can go to their own fridge and is, you know, well satiated, whether that has an impact on on mediation. Because you're right, not only is there fatigue, you know, there's hanger that sometimes leads to deals. But I mean, you're right. It's an interesting dynamic that if people feel maybe more comfortable than they otherwise would have, is that is that a bad thing? I like to think that it's always dependent on the particular matter. I think there's certain matters where maybe, you know, I don't think you as an attorney wind up having these type of relationships with the opposing counsel. But, you know, sometimes there's attorneys who just can't stand each other that it might be better for the whole process if the negotiations are done via Zoom. But on balance, I find that Zoom can be effective. I think it's what we have to do. I'm looking forward to getting better at it and continuing it into the future. But I think like a lot of people, I'm looking forward to the day where I can do my next in-person mediation. Yeah, me too. I think that relationships are key, including your relationship with opposing counsel. And any interference with that relationship is ultimately going to be a bad thing. But we'll have to get used to it. Absolutely. Now, so Matt, you've already said that you've listened to some other of the episodes that I've done here. So you might know that for, I think, the first five or six episodes, I played a version of uh, the Monty Hall game. So because I think you've listened to another episode, I'm not going to play that with you because I don't want you to pretend that you knew what the answer was and that you were, you know, smarter than all the other people who were on the podcast before. But I was ready to do that. I know it. I know. Listen, good trial lawyers, they planned. So I, I, I knew you had done your homework. And actually, I am going to be doing a, a webinar for the American Bar Association's ADR uh, for, for tips that's going to talk about uh, different issues related with probability. And I, I use the Monty Hall game to playfully point out that there's a lot of lawyers who aren't necessarily very good at math. And that creates some issues when you're talking about settlement, because probability is predicting the future and settlement evaluation is doing that. And throughout my career of 25, 26 years, I've encountered some very, very intelligent attorneys and clients who know how to analyze very complex issues. But when it gets down to trying to translate that to evaluation that's reasoned and principled, sometimes they can fall short. So as a mediator, what I try to say is I'm not saying everybody needs to be an expert in math. You don't necessarily have to have heard of Bayes' theorem to be able to crank out formulas on conditional probability. But knowing a little bit about probability isn't you know, necessarily a bad thing. So knowing that you were likely to study up on that, I've got one little game that I'd like to play. All right, we're going to call it. Everybody is sick and tired of COVID-19. And so we're going to come up with the next pandemic. So the next pandemic, we're going to call the Fisher flu. Okay. <laughs> so the Fisher flu affects one out of every thousand people. 
And there's a test, you know, we'll call it the Shulwolf test. It's 95% accurate. So I'll, I'll take that, 95% accurate, the, the Shulwolf test. And it never gives you a false negative. So Matt, you go in and get tested for the Fisher flu, and you test positive. Now, on a scale of 1 to 10, how upset are you? Well, assuming the Fisher flu is a serious thing. It oh, it is. Bad. It is. I mean, yeah. <laughs> the, the Fisher flu is about as serious as you could get. Yeah, I think I'm pretty upset. Okay. So like if you had a bucket list and that bucket list included perhaps, and I'm not suggesting, you know, you're, you're a very important partner at your firm. So I'm not saying you have a boss, but if you had a boss that you didn't like, would this be the time to tell that person, you know, really what you, what you think of them? Well, of course, Steve, I have open and honest communication with all my partners all the time. Yeah, so I course. wouldn't have to uh, have a flu to, to do that. But yeah, it, it sounds like I maybe should take advantage of the opportunity to unburden myself. Okay. Well, and, and the reason why I did this, you're the first person on the podcast to have this instead of the Monty Hall game. But the Fisher flu tries to illustrate what's known as a, a base rate fallacy. And that is that people tend to focus when presented with information that's both specific to them and general on the data that's specific to them. So the reality is mathematically, I mean, the first thing that I said was the the Fisher flu only affects one out of every 1,000 people. So that's one half of 1%. So if you calculate what your likelihood of having the flu is, we, we know the, the way to look at this is, let's say there's 100,000 people. So if you increase the amount of people, it, it helps to demonstrate that. So out of 100,000 people, 100 people should have it. But the test is 95% accurate. It doesn't give a false negative. So the 100 people who actually have the disease will test positive. So then there's 99,900 people remaining. 5% of those people are going to get a test result saying they have the disease. So that's 4,995. So the likelihood that you have the disease is the 100 people who really have it over the 5,095 people who tested for it. So it's still less than 2%. Now, the reason why I, I say this is 2% is still a lot more than one half of 1%. But frankly, if somebody told you you only had a 2% chance of having something, you'd, you'd likely be a little nervous, but you'd take those odds. You wouldn't necessarily be crossing things off your bucket list just quite yet. And how I translate the base rate fallacy into certain discussions and in mediations is many times at a mediation, you'll hear a party say, you know, I know that this jurisdiction isn't great for this argument, and we're giving the other side the benefit of that by saying that the discount we want for a defense is 20%. And they'll use a number that sounds low. But the reality is, if the base rate is that it's a jurisdiction for whatever reason which that's hostile to this defense, even if your individualized facts as an attorney, you have developed the best case. I used to do a lot of insurance coverage litigation and misrepresentation. It's an argument that attorneys love to try to, to develop. Most jurisdictions are very hostile towards it. So you could have the best misrep case in which you've got a lot of good facts, but if you're still going into mediation and suggesting that a 50% discount makes sense, you're likely not mathematically taking into consideration base rate fallacies. So I like to throw these games out there a little bit to try to show that they do impact how we look at numbers. And at the end of the day, you might comment on this. I'm not saying that there's not an emotional component to it when you have plaintiffs involved. But at the end of the day, most commercial disputes at some point boil down just to numbers. Well, I first just want to say that I was ready for the Monty Hall game. So, <laughs> but I, I think you're right. It is interesting to look at it that way, Stephen. If you can, as a mediator, show how that would apply in a legal situation, I think that you really could move people in terms of their perception of their own position. Because you're right, especially commercial disputes. Ultimately, the, the issue is can you find that overlap where a deal could be had? 
All right. Well, and Lord knows I know. I, I try to come up with, you know, different examples. And as a mediator, all you're trying to do is really make sure that if somebody is telling you that they're going to walk away from the negotiating table, I can accept that. You know, it's not the result I want. I can accept it. Not every case has to settle. I know some people, whether it's an emotional reason, a financial reason, just feel that they they need to to go forward to trial. And, and that's good for people like you, Matt, because that's your specialty. But I want to make sure I'll sleep better that night knowing that they fully considered every aspect, whether it's legal, factual, or frankly, mathematical, in terms of how those factors impact their viewpoint. And if they still you know, feel that they, they need to walk away, I feel better. But I at least feel that you need to be able to explore all avenues, not just how is your case sound or what the case law is. But you need to look at everything, including how you're calculating your settlement valuation. As you know, uh, we've talked about this before. To me, a mediator who can bring some creativity to the process is really adding a lot of value. You know, some mediators will serve primarily as kind of messengers of the party's positions. And and that can sometimes help because the parties have lost the ability to communicate among themselves. But I think in most instances where the mediator really adds value is doing exactly what you described by causing people to reevaluate their own positions and perhaps moving one party or both parties to some reconsideration of what they believed before they walked in. So I I think that that's terrifically helpful. I cut my teeth in mediating by doing what you're doing, being a mediator as an attorney. And admittedly, I'm closing the gap, but you know, I had 25 years on one side. So I I still have done more mediations as an attorney as I have as as a mediator. But like I said, the gap is, is quickly closing. But in converting to being a mediator full time, there's studies that talk, and, and most mediators in the ADR community, they, they prefer more of a facilitative approach, going back and forth, having open dialogue. But it seems like attorneys, when they're asked, at some point prefer for somebody to have the ability to be evaluative. And, you know, I was at a recent ADR event and where somebody said, I'm facilitative in the morning, but evaluative in the afternoon. And I think that's a pretty accurate description in terms of what attorneys, you know, are looking for. You know, get out of the way a little bit at the beginning, let the process play out, learn as much as you can about the dispute, both the personalities and the legal factual substance, what their settlement positions are. And then, you know, at the appropriate time, if the parties are willing to go that route, provide a little bit more insight as to how you're evaluating the strengths and weaknesses of the parties. What's your wish list? Or does that make any sense to you uh, in terms of what you're looking for in a mediator? It makes a great deal of sense to me. I think my my general preference would be to move to evaluative perhaps more quickly. But I think that's in part because I'm pretty confident that my ability to communicate with my opposing counsel is, is generally pretty high. So if I have gone to the trouble of hiring a mediator, it usually is because we've already communicated with one another to the point where we've decided we need some help. And we really do need somebody to give us a a third party, more neutral evaluation of the case. There are some situations, I think, where you have to do a little facilitation first. And that makes sense to me from the mediator's perspective. You know, first, you want to make sure that communication is solid. But then it makes sense to me to go to evaluation. I think that some lawyers hire mediators because they want the mediator to talk to their own client. Absolutely. And the, the, the lawyer feels like as that person's advocate, maybe they can't be as candid or as tough with them about the weaknesses in their case or the strength of the opponent's case. And they really want the mediator to do that. So I think that most lawyers actually want an evaluative mediator. I also think that that's a lot more work for the mediator and that it requires a lot more preparation for the mediator in order to be really good at it. Well, it, it, it's funny you mentioned preparation because I was just about to say that a lot of the time I think that the quote that I said about facilitative by day and evaluative by night, a lot of that 
depends on how well the parties have prepared for the mediation, including how well they have presented information to the mediator prior. I always want to have you know, a pre-mediation call, and I'd like as soon as possible, as much as the parties are willing to give me by way of written materials, so that I am not learning that many things on the day of the mediation. I say that because there's always things that you've lived with a case for, you know, maybe two years. And no matter how hard you try to highlight the important parts for me, you know, going back and forth, there's likely to be things that I'm going to learn during the day. And that that's understandable. But I think, you know, as a mediator, I don't feel comfortable, even if the parties want me to be more evaluative, until I feel I have a firm grasp on, on everything. And that's a little bit of a function about how much the parties have done their homework to make sure they've provided me information. Because if you give me the information, I'm going to review it. And hopefully that's something that's appreciated, you know, by the attorneys. But Matt, you'd be surprised in even large dollar commercial matters, how you can tell right away if you have, you know, an attorney or a party who, even though they said they were willing to mediate, they didn't really do a lot of preparation prior to the mediation. And and preparation is always key, whether it's at mediation or at trial. I'm sure you're right about that, Stephen. I think that there's probably a big distinction between a court-ordered mediation and one that the parties have decided among themselves is worth mediating at that particular point in time. But I do think that that notion of preparation is key and really the notion of editing. You know, you can prepare and send the mediator the complaint and the things that give a, a big picture of what the case is. But ultimately, there's going to be a much narrower group of issues that are going to dictate whether or not a resolution is reached. And it seems to me that identifying that narrower group of issues is something that lawyers probably could do a better job at in order to help mediators get to a position where they can be evaluated. You know, and and one thing about your practice that I'm kind of curious how it impacts going into to mediation. One thing that I have found is there's some very good attorneys who are on cases that typically settle. And I think it impacts then the way that they work up a case. Their witnesses, they might have some witnesses who, in a perfect world for them, at least to get by summary judgment, might not have the greatest recollection. So at summary judgment, when the other side was asking them some key questions towards things, they might not have recalled. And that might get them past summary judgment, but at the end of the day, it might not put them in the greatest position for trial. So one of the things as a mediator you have to look at is assess, okay, you've done a great job. Yes, you made it past summary judgment, but now you've got the president of the company who supposedly was in charge of everything and they potentially are going to make that person look bad at trial. That's a that's a litigation risk because he or she didn't remember anything. And so have you found, one of the things you said with your practice is sometimes you're not living with the case from start to finish. Sometimes you're coming in towards the end. Have you found, you know, in your practice that, you know, there's some attorneys who are looking at different stages, let's get by summary judgment or let's do this, but it impacts how the case potentially is going to play out at trial? I do think that happens, and it happens quite a bit, as you pointed out at the top of the podcast here. You know, I've got a mass tort practice, and oftentimes you can tell that cases have been worked up to get past summary judgment, and the sheer number of them is really what drives a lot of the leverage in the cases. So, yeah, I think that happens, although it's hard for one side, I think, to know whether that's happening or not on the other side. So you have to get ready for each case as if you're going to end up trying it anyway and build those pieces one at a time. Oh, there's no question on your end. You have to make it known as soon as you filed your appearance that if this case goes all the way to trial, you're prepared for that. And, and Lord knows as a mediator, that means if we're in the room together, you're most likely going to tell me that, look, if we don't settle today, we have no problem going to court tomorrow. Right. And that's one of the advantages that I have in those instances where I show up for trial because the mere fact that I've showed up is a signal about my client's intentions and their readiness. Absolutely. 
Well, Matt, I very much appreciate your willingness to participate in this episode. I, I, I think we live in amazing times, and it was very interesting, both in episode seven, to talk academically about how we're responding to COVID, and now to talk practically in terms of what's going on on the ground. So thank you very much uh, for showing up today. We really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. I've enjoyed the prior podcasts, and I'm happy to be part of it. This closes the door on Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast. Please join us next time where Steve will discuss with a new guest topics related to mediation, negotiation, and resolution. Thank you for listening.